0: Robert Audi, in his article, The Ethical Significance of Cost-Benefit Analysis in Business and the Professions, notes that for quite a few people, cost-benefit analysis, that is, tallying up costs on one side and benefits on another for each option that you're looking at, is essentially equivalent to utilitarianism, and so they are liable to view it as usable in ethics or as something that we should reject, depending on how they view utilitarianism. He is going to argue in the Article that it's of use in other moral theoretical approaches as well. But he begins by talking about utilitarianism, which makes perfect sense given that the framework itself is going to be understood in this way. And so this is happening in the very first section of the work. And he's going to say utilitarianism is in a good position to use in illustrating this. So this is typically when we will bring cost benefit benefit analysis up, whether it's in a regular ethics class or a professional ethics class of whatever sort it happens to be. For example, business ethics, which is something that he's talking about here. And he says that in its most common hedonistic version, utilitarianism says in rough terms, there's only one thing good in itself, namely happiness, including the absence and presumably the reduction of suffering. And here's the the moral principle, the supreme moral principle principle should be that an act is right if and only if it contributes at least as favorably to the proportion of happiness to unhappiness in the relevant population as any available alternative. So what does it actually mean? Well, in practice, you look at the different options available and you try to think about what the outcomes are likely to be and you try to choose the one that maximizes positive outcomes and minimizes negative outcomes for all the people who are affected. And there's a few other things in there in the classical utilitarian view, like each person's happiness counts just as much as everybody else's. And so Audi says that, you know, a lot of people would actually see this, as he says, as a kind of ethics by cost-benefit analysis. So what is really distinctive to utilitarianism, Well, you're doing cost-benefit analyses as an integral part of deciding what the right thing to do is, the good thing to do, given the different alternatives. And you can do this for specific cases, and you can do this for general policies, and you can do this even, you know, thinking about human nature in general and what it is that we tend to like and dislike and, and make fairly general statements about this. And this is what the classical utilitarian philosophers like Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill Henry Sidgwick and others ended up doing. So how do we actually do this cost-benefit analysis? He says, well, first we assign numbers from negative to positive to represent utilities. Utilities are the, just the numbers, positive or negative. Like a certain action could have positive utility for me of, let's say, a quanta of 10 when we tally it all up, but a negative outcome for everybody else affected, you know, in a much greater number. And then we say, oh, okay, we're not gonna do that sort of action. So we assign utility and he says we can assign this in the form of quantities of happiness or suffering. So there's an assumption there that we can actually quantify happiness and suffering. Then we have to think about the probabilities and this is very important as well if my doing an action that will actually produce a great amount of positive utility for a number of people has a slight chance of also producing a catastrophic effect that will produce a lot more negative utility well we have to figure out what that probability is because if it's like you know an infinitesimal amount that we're not going to worry about it if it's 10% then we are going to worry about it right and we'll consider that and then he doesn't say this here but he said it a little bit earlier we have to think about the number of people who are affected so if i can engage in an action that has negative utility for me but it's just kind of a mild irritant you know it's not ruining my day and it can make a whole bunch of other people happy that whole bunch of other people because each of them matters as much as I do, it's going to outweigh my negative utility and with their positive utility. So this is how we do cost-benefit analyses. And you can do this in terms of money, as often is the proxy, but you can do it in also in terms of quanta of pleasure or pain, as Jeremy Bentham attempts to do. We we have all sorts of other ways of trying to measure this as well, but we do have to assign numbers. That's what's really central to this. And then he's gonna talk about, well, what does a utilitarian do? You could think of it as selecting the option with the highest positive uh, utility, but what if you don't actually have positive utility? Well, then you choose the one that has the lowest negative utility. If you're on a scale, you know, however far down the scale is, pick the best option, best being the one that, you know, is most likely to have the better proportion of positive outcomes over negative. Outcomes, And he gives you some examples here about like a whistleblowing case, a professional in an architectural firm finds materials being used, which is not as good as the contract calls for. So we have a really nice, juicy, and hopefully not too commonplace sort of situation here. And he says, you know, we can actually tally this up. You can read the article itself to see how he does that. And the two options are to divulge the information or just continue on with business. Business as usual. And you know in this case, the architect actually has two negative outcomes, but finds that continuing as usual is preferable for them. And we can say, well, that, that's not good, that's going to discourage whistleblowing, right? But we can monkey around with the numbers and produce situations that are conducive to promoting whistleblowing, right? Now, he does make two interesting points that he wants to stress. One is that the outcome values can vary from option to option. So, for example, in the architect case, getting fired is one of the possible negative outcomes, right? And it can be valued in terms of positive or negative utility, in this case, negative utility, differently in the situation. So getting fired because one actually did the right thing might not be as painful as just plain old getting fired when you've been loyal and quotes to the company, loyal to the company by not divulging that they're actually doing the wrong thing. So as he says, the context of the outcome may affect its value. And then he says, a second thing is a value can be assigned to anything its users value as part of their happiness. So there may be some things that, you know, we as sort of reasonably well-grounded, morally developed individuals might say, that's, that's kind of negligible. But if that figures into somebody else's happiness, from a utilitarian perspective, you actually need to take that into account, right? And he says, you know, there's there's constraints on this kind of analysis, you know, we have to be considerate of what is actually a value in these cases and he also goes on to say listen we also do have to choose the lesser of two evils in many cases we don't actually need to introduce that as a rule because that would make things a bit more complex according to him so we go on and we find that he says that and this shows you the scope of utilitarianism these examples that he's provided you know Medical examples, architectural examples show how utterly general the cost-benefit framework can be. You can use it for medical and moral decisions, for example, as well as for commercial uses. In purely commercial cases, we substitute profit for happiness or whatever value determines one assignments of values to outcomes, the framework may be applied in the same way, right? So we can use this for just about anything. You could use this for personal decisions. You could use this for governmental policy making. That's why we teach utilitarianism in basically every ethics class. It doesn't mean that everybody has to become a utilitarian, but it's certainly a approach using cost-benefit analysis that is incredibly widespread and, for a lot of people, quite intuitive. Now, he goes on and he says two other things that I think we need to take stock of. One is, and he uses the word appearance here, right? That should raise some alarm bells for us. He says, the procedure has the appearance of being scientific except for the assignment of value and that can be scientific insofar as there are objective measures of happiness and suffering. Now, is there really objective measures of happiness and suffering? That's a big if. There's a lot of discussion out there about how this could possibly work or not work. But he says that you know the appeal of hedonism and utilitarianism in this case is a form of that is that it appears to offer the possibility of an empirical objective measure of value and you know there's as I mentioned, different ways of doing this or conceptualizing this. Now, if we want it to be truly objective, truly scientific, we have to do a lot of research, of course. And this also offers us the possibility of finding out that we were wrong in our original assumptions or assessments about things. We have to actually go to people and say, well, what do you like? What do you dislike? Right? The second thing that he says, and I find this a little bit unconvincing myself, but you'll have to think about this in light of what you know about, John Stuart Mill's qualitative utilitarianism is he says that you might think that a qualitative utilitarianism like John Stuart Mill's cannot use the cost-benefit framework as described above because it is quantitative, but this would be a mistake. Now, just as a little refresher, John Stuart Mill says that there are not just quantitative differences in pleasures and pains, but there are qualitative. Some things are better to the extent that no amount of the the lower would substitute for the higher or the loss or lack of higher he's got that famous phrase better to be socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied right which gives you an idea about what he he has in mind so i often frame this in terms of beer versus books right it's fun to drink beer tastes good can have a fun time at a party because your social inhibitions have been loosened up and feels kind of fun to have that high at least until you get too sick from it. ...of the alcohol, but no amount of that actually makes up for the pleasure that a refined individual can find in a good book... Right? You could pile up cases and cases of beer and say, here you go, it's all yours, and that one book outweighs it. That's that's Mills' position, and he has a whole complex way of describing how this works. Audi says, Well, you can just assign a higher quantity to the recognized higher quality value. And he uses the example: suppose that the pleasures of watching a play by Shakespeare are a higher quality than those of watching a new movie, but the quantities are assumed to be equal. Well, you just multiply that quantitative value by 1.5 in the case of the play. And he says Mill might have envisioned this kind of strategy, but I don't think that that's what Mill has in mind. So this could still be a potential problem for utilitarianism. I will say this though. Mill thinks that if the pleasures are on the same level, right? One kind of beer versus another kind of beer or beer versus wine or beer versus a soda or coffee. Well, then you can use quantitative utilitarianism to talk about it. It's only when there's radical differences in quality that you're posed with an issue. So this is part of what Audi says about utilitarianism in the very start of this article. He also talks about problems or critiques that can be made, but we're we're gonna put that off for a moment It's enough just to understand why utilitarianism is almost the same thing. It's, you know, in many people's minds, identical to cost-benefit analysis in ethics. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page.